Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello, Guilty Feminist. It's Deborah Francis-White. We had such a wonderful time recording this episode at the Lyric Hammersmith recently, but we had some terrible technical problems at the venue, so I'm really sorry, but the sound quality is not what you've come to expect. I know you will have to listen a bit more attentively than usual, but please, please do, because honestly, I think it's one of the best and most important shows we've ever done. We've got stand-up from Hari Kondabolu, Abigail Shimon and Desiree Birch, and we've got amazing conversations with refugees at home who explain how you or someone you know might be able to host a refugee this Christmas. And Steve, Ali and I reminisce about our first Christmas together last year. We also talked to Crisis about how you can pay for someone who has no home from the 24th to the 29th of December, inclusive to have a place to stay, three meals a day, hot showers and a Christmas Day celebration, all for under £30 for the whole period. And also how you can get involved with volunteering for the homeless all over the UK with crisis at Christmas and beyond. We also get an update from friend of the podcast, the American immigration lawyer, Michelle Garnett McKenzie, about the situation there. So please listen closely, stick with it, and I promise that next week we'll be in the high fidelity you've rightly come to expect from The Guilty Feminist. And now, on with the show. Anderson School and uh, did a speaking gig with Michelle Obama. I mean, we were both honored to speak there, not to each other. Uh, it was more like she spoke than I spoke. Uh, but she was inspiring, she was elegant, she was dignified, she was extraordinary. But most of all, I was so thrilled that I am absolutely 100% sure I could get into her trousers. <laughs> 
expert. I don't mean like that. That's actually, I didn't mean it to come out like that, but it, like I could fit it. I was studied that really hard. And when she stood up and turned around, I was like, I know I can fit her dress. She looked so tight on television. And I was like, man, we could share clothes. So happy. go to a doctor about one of my boobs for all the reasons that you have to go see a doctor when you have boobs. Uh, don't worry, they're fine. Um, but uh, I didn't expect him to be fine. Um, and, uh, you know, he looks at boobs all day, it's crazy. So anyway, I'm laying there and then he does, you know, the movement where you've got to like do this. And, you know, and, and it's like, I want to tell you that I was really cool about it, but like immediately as my arms are going up, I remembered how long it's been since I've shaved my armpits. And I was also greeted by the smell of not regularly using deodorant. And I, what I wanted to think was like, well, this man should smell what a woman's work smells like. Um, it's true. Uh, but what I did think is like, dear God, what will he think of me? And I'm like, he's a doctor in Croydon. Like he's not thinking about me. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but when I was home for Thanksgiving and uh, playing cards with my family, the song uh, Baby It's Cold Outside came out. I uh, educated my family by saying, actually, it's a very feminist song because it's about a woman uh, rebelling against the constraints, uh, the social pressures, consensually with her partner. My little brother just goes, yeah, you could say that. If you completely ignore the line the man says when he goes, what's the use of her, my pride, ignoring any way a woman might feel about this situation. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Thank you, Abraham. <laughs> of course, that's an awful song. I think there's also the line to say, what's in this drink? Oh, yeah. That's, that's the real troubling line. The rehypnal line of that cheery Christmas duet. Wait, can you taste rehypnal? I assumed it was scotch. We've deviated so early. I'm a feminist, but today, when I was at a speaking gig with Michelle Obama, I don't know if I mentioned that. <laughs> to be honest, I'll never be mentioning anything else again in my full life. That's, that's what I mention now. If I'm mentioning, that's what I'm mentioning. Uh, I was so disappointed because she had sleeves. Now it's winter, I get it. But her arms are like, I'm just so fascinated by her arms because they're like a tennis player's arms. They're just, I don't know what she does. It's no point me finding out because I wouldn't do it, but. <laughs> They are just so, and she had sleeves, and I was just sitting there listening to her words of wisdom and watching her mesmerize these children, by the way. Some of these children were each other's 12, there wasn't a peep. They were just sitting there totally gripped to this woman, just adoring her like she was the second coming, which she might be. <laughs> Do not rule it out. 12 years to slow climate change, or the oxygen goes. Michelle Obama is a candidate for the Messiah, is all I'm suggesting. <laughs> That's gotta be somewhere in Nostradamus anyway. All I was sitting there as I was watching her mesmerize these children, in the back of my mind, in the front of my mind, I was paying attention. In the back of my mind, I was like, why would you ever wear sleeves? <laughs> in any temperature, if you had those arms. Just, I think she's wrong. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but 
Uh, so you know that thing when you're walking down the street and you see a guy with his girlfriend and he's touching her in a way that suggests something controlling, like he's got the back of the neck and you're just like, are you are you gonna choke her out? And then you're like, what? Yeah, like you get it, you claim that one, dude. Like, and you just get aggressively angry at a guy you've never met. Um, well, I was on a date recently uh, with a guy, which is the thing I sometimes do, and he didn't grab me by the neck, fortunately, because that would have been assault. But he, um, uh, we were going through traffic, and as uh, we kind of formed a single file, he sort of pressed his hand to the center of my back to kind of, I don't know what. But I, at first, I was kind of like, do you think I know, don't know how to walk? Are you trying to push me in my battering ram? Like, I'm freaking out. And then I, I was like, or maybe he just wanted to put me first and show that he wanted to stay connected to me. And then I was like, am I contextualizing something that I've always thought was extremely fucked up? Or am I understanding something from a different point of view? I don't know if this is progress or regress. Someone please tell me. That's the inside of every feminist head. Every blinding minute of every day. If you're a man, that's what we're thinking every time you open a door for us. It's a very exhausting job. I'm a feminist, but uh, when my boyfriend of four years explains to me very rationally that he never wants to get married because it's an archaic, patriarchal institution, and he looks at me as more than just property he can trade for cattle, I always, I always respond with, but I want a I would look so good in white. Do you know, if you listen to, like, to the most recent episode, I do a whole apology for why women want winnings. Yes, I was it's listening to that. And I was like, thank you. This is probably for the mom. <laughs> yes, but yeah, seriously. Well, the next time it comes up, it's usually when I'm drunk. I, uh, I'm just going to read that part of your book to my boyfriend and be like, say and slam it and then just plan the date right then and there. <laughs> just book the venue and buy the dress. There's shovel. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I once told a group of young women at a university that they had incorrectly capitalized Bell Hooks' name on a poster, since Bell Hooks only uses lowercase letters. I mansplained Bell Hooks to a group of young women. But to be fair, I was correct. Live from the Lyric Hammersmith, The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, Hari Kondabolu, Desiree Birch and Abigail Shimon and our very special guests, Michelle Garner-McKenzie, Rachel Mantel, Hannah Gauzy and Steve Ali talking about active compassion with music from Clarissa Land. What have you done? That is what we'll be exploring tonight. Our theme is active compassion. That's right, compassion is so easy to feel and then ignore. <laughs> you watch Netflix and eat matchsticks. It's Christmas. I feel sad because there's sadness in the world. What am I gonna do about that? Nothing. Hashtag feminism. 
Christmases, you know. Uh, this Christmas we're going to switch it up with a little bit of an act of compassion, because I truly believe if you feel compassion and you don't send it back out into the world in the form of kindness, it turns into depression in your body and then you have to carry it as luggage. It's like imagine you're in an airport and someone tries to give you four more suitcases to wheel around. That's what happens every time you feel sad for somebody else because you're looking at a terrible, terrible power injustice but you don't do anything about it. Who wants extra suitcases in the airport? That's what I'm suggesting. Do you? No. <laughs> That's why we have to have active compassion because when you put compassion into your body and then you turn it into kindness and righting the wrongs of the world, then it turns into energy, energy with which we can power electricity and save the planet. Okay, not going for this. All right. Sure, I'm right. Maybe I've overstated the case in both directions, but I believe by the end of the night, you're going to be on Team Act of Compassion. Do you have any feminist t-shirts in? Any? Yes? Any Christmas feminist t-shirts? No, okay. What's your feminist t-shirt? Just shout it out. Oh, just as feminist. <laughs> it just, just, just does what it says on the ticks. And <laughs> it's, that's it, that's it. Just feminist. No need for any embellishment there. No need for any embellishment. Anyone else? Anyone else got a feminist t-shirt? Or merch? I've got a bag. You've got a bag? You've got a bag? What does it say? Fearless Women Make History. Fearless Women Make History. <laughs> Yes, they do. Where was that made, though? Uh, <laughs> Strand. Strand. New York Bookshop. A New York Bookshop? They've got to be ethical. <laughs> if it was in Brooklyn, it's definitely feminist. Thank you very much. Well done. So tonight we're talking about active compassion. And I did see, you know, sometimes, you know, even Tories surprise you. I saw a couple of... <laughs> a few Tory MPs out at food banks. There they were, there they were at food banks. They, um, they all copied and pasted the same copy for their tweet though, and that was, that was a sort of giveaway that they'd been told to go, and they hadn't gone on their own time. But I also think Tories and food banks posing like, look at my charity. And I'm like, you do understand if you're running the country and people are going to food banks at Christmas, you failed. <laughs> were outside in the cold 
and we threw the odd carrot out and we felt better about ourselves. And that is why I truly believe they fully funded Downton Abbey. <laughs> I truly believe it. So here's the thing. The news is kind of depressing at the moment. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, depressing to the point of the far right arising. Uh, the next Christmas uh, show we're having here is called the Yuletide Anti-Fascist Extravaganza. And because I, I genuinely, you can see it, it's kind of happening. And it's very scary what's happening in America. It's scary what's happening here. It's scary what's happening all over Europe. And the things they're saying in the Australian Parliament are terrifying. So I'm looking at that and just going, oh, this is a really scary time. And like, what do we do about it? What can we do? Because we know how we feel, but what do we do? And uh, somebody asked Michelle Obama today, I don't know if I've mentioned it. Um, <laughs> did a gig with Michelle Obama and <laughs> Michelle and I. Anyway, <laughs> good times, good times. You had to be there. You weren't. And, <laughs> and so Michelle and I, we were talking. We weren't. Uh, uh, somebody asked her, "You're famous for when they go low, we go high. Do you still feel like that with what's happening?" And she said, "Well, what choice do we have?" but to live with hope, to act with hope, and to lead with hope. And I thought, I'm, you are the Messiah, Michelle. <laughs> and so tonight we live, act, and lead with hope. So put your hands together and make extraordinary guilty feminists welcoming wahooing noises for the wonderful Hari Kondabolu! <laughs> Uh, my name is Hari Kundabolu, but I signed my name Hari K. Kundabolu because as a child, my mother told me to keep my middle initial in my name in case there was another Hari Kundabolu, <laughs> there wouldn't be any confusion. What I find strangest about this is that my mother assumed if there was another Hari Kundabolu, I would have to keep the middle initial in his name. I would be the less famous Hari Kundabolu. <laughs> My mother thought I was going to be the Michael B. Jordan of Hari Kundabolus. <laughs> I tour all over the world, I tour all over America. I don't know if you've heard, not the best time to be a minority in America. And I tour the country, which frightens my parents. And my mother, uh, before a show I did in Indiana, sent me this text. And I think she was trying to be, to be helpful, uh, but she was also frightened. And so she sent me this this text right before I get on stage. Be safe, love. People are crazier than ever. Remember, this is just your job. It's just a way to make a living. It's like these people have permission to do terrible things to you now. I don't know why you do this to us. Love you. I love my mother very much. I think uh, my mom has an incredibly open heart. My mom had gay friends in conservative Southern India in the 70s before that even seemed feasible because she has this open heart and people can share their truth with her and I've always loved her compassion and her ability to be how she is. So my mom has always supported gay rights, but even though my mother supported gay rights, she used to be against gay adoption because she said you need a man and a woman to raise a child. And I asked her about it recently and she no longer felt that way and I asked her why and she said, well, I thought about it for a while, and I realized that your father had no role in raising you. So clearly the gender of the parents doesn't matter, and I could have used the help. So 
So I have this mother that supports gay rights, but I was homophobic at one point because I was 10. And that's how we were fed, right? So we called each other gay in school. We used it as an insult. We didn't know what it meant, but we knew it would hurt each other if we used it. Like, I was called gay all the time in middle school, and I made an abbreviated list of the reasons why I was called gay. Uh, again, this list is uh, abbreviated. Right? I was called gay in middle school because I had earmuffs, because I had a handkerchief, because my favorite Ninja Turtle was Donatello, because I had a pink backpack, because I claimed my pink backpack was magenta, because I knew the color magenta. Because one time I ate a nectarine. <laughs> because of my use of the word salutations. <laughs> not the best time for feminism in the United States, not the best time for women in the United States. And not only is it terrible, I hate the fact that Trump actually claims that he supports women. He actually has the audacity, despite everything, to claim he supports women, that he's a champion of women, when the truth is, the only time Donald Trump has liberated women is when he's divorced them. <laughs> it's horrific. I think it's really important that we actually listen to each other. I think we all struggle to do that often, but we actually need to listen to each other actively. And I don't think we do a good job. And I know that because we actually use the phrase devil's advocate, right? Devil's advocate. That's a phrase you can basically hide behind to say whatever contrarian bullshit you want to say while pretending you're being objective when you might just be, you know, being a dick. <laughs> but more importantly, why does the devil need an advocate? <laughs> he is the devil. Why does the prince of darkness need your help exactly? What are you telling me is happening here? Hey Steve, it's me, the devil. I need your help right now. Uh... See that woman over there that's saying men and women should be paid equally in the workforce? Well, I want you to tell her, on my behalf, it's <laughs> not what's happening here. And also, why does the devil want you to make a contrarian argument about something? What does the devil get out of a contrarian argument? That's not how you play devil's advocate. This is how you play devil's advocate. I think men and women should be paid equally in the workforce. That's interesting. Have you thought about selling your soul to the devil? That's all the devil wants. That's all the devil has ever been interested in. I think we should have universal health care in America. You know, if you'd like to live forever, you could sell your soul to the devil. That's all the devil wants. I think we should make America great again. Well, oh, you've already. Okay. <laughs> I'm obviously uh, pro-choice. I have really strong opinions about why I'm pro-choice, and I share them publicly, uh, especially on Twitter where it's safe <laughs> for men. And so I was tweeting about why I was pro-choice, and I went on a bit of a rant, and all these anti-choice people got very angry. They were sending me reasons I should be against abortion, and some of the reasons were so absurd that I wanted to share a few of them with you. Here are my favorite reasons why I apparently should be against abortion. The first reason why apparently you should be against abortion is, well, fetus means baby in Latin. Who cares what it means in Latin? When do any of you make your decisions based on what words mean in Latin? Who cares what the Romans thought? And ironically, Latin's a dead language. 
it's fucked up, but it's so smart, though. And it's a class of the language pro-choice today. And the second reason I was given is, aren't you glad you weren't one of those who was aborted? Sometime. And of good days and bad days. I was performing in Berlin a few days ago, and do you know what they call birth control pills in Berlin? Anti-baby pills. I love it, German, so direct, so to the point. Anti-baby pills. It sounds like something Batman would have on his utility belt. Batman, I don't want to get pregnant. Well, try these anti-baby pills. Or perhaps one of these latex sperm traps. Because the last thing you want is a human parasite. <laughs> I don't know how it is here, but in the U.S. people claim that they support women and children, right? They're, they're pro-life because they, you know, against abortion because they support women and children. They don't give a shit about women and children, right? And you know it on the most basic level, right? Because if people gave a shit about women and children, how could people freak out when women breastfeed in public? People freak out, like, I can't believe I'm seeing this in public. How dare you? I can't believe I'm seeing this in America. This thing that's existed since the beginning of time that we've all had to do at some point. Ugh, it's disgusting. Can't we be more compassionate? Haven't you ever been hungry in public before? <laughs> what do you do when you're hungry in public? Oh my God, I'm hungry in public. Let me buy a sandwich and hide. <laughs> Baby can't buy a sandwich. What's the baby supposed to do? breast is not sexual in the circumstance. This is how the baby feeds. So what is the issue here? Unless we're questioning the baby's motivations. Is that what's happening right now, London? People are questioning the baby's motivations, like this baby was a weird dude at a strip club lunch buffet. I'm sure it's about the food, baby. I'm sure it's about the food. You're fucking sick doing that in public. That's disgusting. You should be ashamed of yourself. That is disgusting. Please, I'm just a baby. Why, why are you yelling at me right now? I am so small. Why are you yelling at me? This is my only source of nourishment. Shut up, baby, shut up! You're sick, I can't believe I'm seeing this. Ugh. Oh my God, look at you work that nipple with your tongue. Oh my God, look at you work that nipple with your No, I'm not the weird one for looking. No, I'm not the weird one for looking. Sick. I'm just a baby. I'm so small. Why are you yelling at me and my mother right now? If, if I don't drink this, I will die. Why are you yelling at me? Why are you not questioning the fact that I'm talking to you right now? Shut up, you freak-talking baby. Shut up. You're fucking sick. Oh, you're a freak. I bet you like roleplay, don't you? Yeah. I bet you like roleplay. Look, little freaks dressed like a sailor. dressed babies up as sailors and not other members of the armed forces. A baby green beret would be adorable. Thank you very much, while you're here in London. Yeah. Because normally we can only see you on the Netflix because of you being in the America. Yes, that's correct. Uh, I will be at the Soho Theatre uh, from today until the 15th of December. And I will be doing a show called American Hour. And it's very funny. 
for us to judge. <laughs> but based on that, we were judging as hysterical five stars. <laughs> and we're going to do something together in Geneva. Yes, I believe we're doing a Guilty Feminist podcast with my mother in Geneva. That's right. Yes. And is it the Human Rights Convention? It's, yeah, it's like a, a UN human it's rights? It's a human migrant rights, uh, as long as the check there's Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> you paid? Uh, okay, no, okay. no, I'm not getting paid. No. What? <laughs> I was told it was about micro human rights, and I was like, don't pay me. This is what this is life being a woman. I like, no, I could possibly give it to the migrants. Harry's, by the way, like, I'm not going out to the check, please. Okay. Um, yeah, he's like, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We're no. gonna have such a great time. Yes, and I'm not getting paid. Tries that again because apparently you did that with her. Yeah. You got paid, Michelle Obama didn't get paid, and so on. It caused a rift between the two families. I didn't know you were on Tumblr. That is something else, yes. That is the rumor that is going around, it's yes. It's true, it's true. Well, so I'm going to see you in Geneva, but I will see you before then at your show at the Soho Theatre. I'm super excited about that. Thank you. Please all come. It's going to be absolutely awesome. And uh, also check out Hari on Netflix. He is a genuinely a golden voice that we need right now. Shining light coming out of the dark United States of America. Uh, thank you very much, Hari Connery. because every liberal person there was like, ooh, I need a gay friend, they're very trendy. <laughs> and now it's 2018, and uh, we're seeing more trans people in the media than we ever have, it's so cool. You know, they're on TV, they're in magazines, they're writing, it's great. But now that means when I tell my uber liberal friends that I used to want to be a man, they're like, yes, I have a trans friend, I'm woke as fuck. <laughs> and, and I'm not trans, I don't identify that, that I just wanted to be a man. And I was telling one of my guy friends, I was like, oh, if I woke up, dream realized I was a man and I had a penis, the first thing I'd do is go for a jog. <laughs> Thank you for understanding. Because he was flummoxed. 
He was just like, a jog, really, you go for a jog. I was like, but of course, because I know what bouncy boobs feel like, but what do bouncy balls feel like? Someone's gotta do this research, you know? He's like, really, your first day as a man, the first thing you do is wake up and go for a jog. That's the first thing you do. It's not have sex or masturbate. That's when I realized maybe I'm not a man after all. Like I said, I'm American. As an American, there, uh, I've lived in the UK now for four years. There are two questions I'm asked about all the time. When is Trump anything to do with Trump, the wall Trump? Which is very interesting. Like I said earlier, I was just home for Thanksgiving. You know how some people are so left? Like, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and make an assumption to say we're all liberal people here. Uh, you know, but you, sometimes you meet people that are so left, they're right. <laughs> I'm gonna level with you. My entire extended family on my mother's side, not my immediate family, my extended family, are Trump supporters, which puts me in a very tricky situation at Thanksgiving. But it also means like sometimes I'll be talking to my liberal friends and they'll be like, yeah, all Trump supporters should die. And I'm like, not my Uncle Clement. He's a good man, he raised his daughter, put her through college, he's now a Democrat, we're doing fine. But yeah, when is Trump the wall? Anything to do with Trump? What do you think? The other American issue, we've talked a lot about refugees, I'll tell you, it's not that. Uh, what do you think the other one is that people ask me about? Bacon. Sorry? Bacon. Bacon, no, that's not. <laughs> no, I mean, because we all agree that ours is better. Uh, no, it's not bacon. No, it's guns. That's the one. It's the gun thing. Now someone just went, of course. Of course. <laughs> No one knows. Do you have one? Do you have one? Yes. Tell us about the gun. It's a, it's a tricky thing, the gun issue. I don't know uh, how much you know about this, but in America, we have a document called the Bill of Rights. The Second Amendment gives us the right to bear arms. It's one of our oldest documents. The Second Amendment is literally 17 words long. It has caused quite the kerfuffle. <laughs> and because the right to bear arms is in the Bill of Rights. I don't know if we'll ever get rid of guns completely in the States. And if we do, it'd be a shame, because they're fun to shoot. <laughs> I knew you'd tense up there. <laughs> I knew you would. I knew you would, because most of you are British people, and you've never fired a gun. And let me tell you, no one ever talks about how fun it is. <laughs> it is a joy. Of course it is. It is so much fun. Where do you think the term, that's a blast, came from? <laughs> It's fun. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm a true London liberal now. I haven't shot a gun since I was a child. <laughs> How else do you relate to that? <laughs> but it, it's tricky. It's tricky when I go home and I talk to my extended family, you know, about these certain issues because, you know, they believe what they believe. Like a couple of months ago, my 70-year-old aunt and uncle came to visit me and my English boyfriend, Tom, here in London. And I told Tom, I was like, they want to take us out to dinner. And he was like, I don't know if I want to go out to dinner with your 70-year-old and uncle, where would we go? And I was like, well, probably a steakhouse. But if you do come, and I want you to come, just don't bring up politics, because you know, they're Trump supporters. And immediately, my English boyfriend was like, oh, I'm going. Because <laughs> he had never met a Trump supporter before. And you, as forward-thinking Londoners, maybe you've never met one either. And everyone thinks they look different. Everyone thinks they're just shrouded in ammunition in the American flag, wearing a pointy white hat, being like, 
That's not what they look like. They look exactly like us. That's how they got away with it! <laughs> I don't need a microphone. <laughs> but they did, they came, they took us out to dinner. We had a lovely time. We didn't bring up politics until it got to the dessert portion of meal. And that is when my 70-year-old uncle told me his beliefs on gun control. And he was just like, well, I had my gun. I had my gun to protect my family because there's been some burglaries in the neighborhood. And you know what? You don't even have to shoot it. You just wave it at him and they'll run away. That's all you have to do. You just wave it at him. He has Parkinson's. Oh. <laughs> He's literally telling me this while spilling coffee all over his sticky toffee pudding. He's like, you just wave it at him. And I was like, yeah, and shoot the perpetrator, your dog, and your wife. Like, I think we need to make the gun law in America more strict. I absolutely do. And with this new information, I think I've come up with the solution. Because in America, you can buy a gun at 18. Now, I believe in that. You can vote, you can be in the army, you can buy cigarettes, buy a gun, get into it. We need an age cap. <laughs> and that age cap needs to be specifically 30. Because most people think gun violence skews young. That's what gets a lot of press. It actually skews much older. In fact, the average age of a mass shooter is 35. And I understand that, because I'm 33 now, and I'm feeling it. <laughs> it's when you're between the ages of 18 and 29, and you are full of fun and whimsy, and you just want a gun to shoot straight up in the air. It's when you turn 30 that you understand how disappointing life is, and that's when you start aiming that shit. Once you turn 90, you turn it back. Is that too dark? <laughs> I just never know. <laughs> now, I've told some of my friends my plan, and they're like, Abigail, uh, uh, not a bad idea, but you haven't thought of everything. Because, uh, the, like, if we look at just the statistics for mass shootings alone, it doesn't add up. Because what's the age of the youngest mass shooter ever in America? 11 years old. Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, do you know those names? You know the people, if you don't know the names, it's the Columbine shooters, children. So it's not enough to just take guns away from the older demographic. So we gotta look at the statistics, it's a hard word to say, shut up. <laughs> statistics again. And let's focus on mass shootings, because I've done a lot of research on the subject. I'm now on a list for anything to raise the profile. <laughs> How many mass shootings have there been in American history total? Over 800. How many of them have been committed by women? Two. So we don't need to take the guns away from everyone. <laughs> Valid point here. But like people who own guns, when they read 
the statistics of violence about guns, they don't think it applies to them. My uncle doesn't think it applies to him. He doesn't think it matters. I have to write it down every time because the number changes so rapidly. That 25,939 people have injured themselves in America with guns just this year. That 13,419 people have died in America because of guns this year. That is not counting suicides. 22,000 people a year on average commit suicide in America with a gun every year. And my uncle doesn't think that those statistics apply to him because he's like, that's not me. I'm a responsible gun owner. I'm a safe. I have my license to conceal and carry. I have another safe for my bullet. Those statistics don't apply to me. So we need to find a statistic that applies to the average gun buyer. The average gun buyer is a man. It just is, statistically speaking. Don't worry, I found the statistic. <laughs> Since 2010, eight men have accidentally shot themselves in the dick. <laughs> eight, eight, a harrowing statistic. In the dick. The dick. The dick. Best case scenario, you bleed out and die. Worst case scenario, you're a eunuch because you got no dick. One guy went shopping to Walmart and he took his gun just in case. Yes, that's silly. And he bought his stuff. He went to put it in the back car. He had his gun in his pocket. He sat down in the driver's seat and he shot himself in the dick. That's why if I had a dick, the only thing I'd ever do is go for a jog. consultant but in my spare time I help run refugees at home and we host destitute refugees and asylum seekers in ordinary homes all around the country. Hi, my name is Hannah Gowsey, I work in the policy and campaigns team at Crisis which is a national homelessness charity working across England, Scotland and Wales. Um, we're quite well known for our crisis at Christmas activity, um, but we also provide year-round services to help end people's homelessness. And of course, in my team, we are campaigning for the change that is needed to end homelessness for good. Hello, 
my name is Steve Ali, I'm from Syria. Um, some of you may know me from BBC Radio 4 podcast, Go on a Plan. Okay, so we're talking about active compassion specifically at Christmas. Rachel, you work for refugees at home. What is the need at Christmas for people to open up their homes to refugees and in which ways can we do that? So we have just hosted 100,000 nights worth of hosting, but it becomes much more difficult at Christmas because people's family comes home, they want to host people from their kind of immediate network, and sometimes that means that their guests can't stay over Christmas. Um, so what we'd really love is for people to give hosting a go over a nice contained festive period, and if you're cooking for loads of people, it makes no difference to just add another chair to the table. And then when you discover how brilliant it is, um, we'd like people to become long-term hosts and do what about 150 people a night do um, and, you know, use their spare rooms to help get refugees and asylum seekers off the streets. And can I say it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. It really adds to the spirit of Christmas in a remarkable way. Last year, Steve had just moved in with us, so you weren't long with us then, Steve. And we go up to another family. Tom and I go up to another family in Lancashire for Christmas. And we said, can we bring Steve? He's from Syria. And they were like, sure. And it was really lovely because, Steve, that was your first Christmas, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Quite an experience. <laughs> Having my first um, Christmas stocking at 25, so I felt like a child, really. But in a very different way because I, mean, I wasn't born Christian or I was born Muslim, so to me that was a very uh, double surprise, you know. Well, also, the wires got crossed with who was going to be Santa for Steve. <laughs> And three of us oh, left stockings at the front of his door. And I said to him, this is not normally what Christmas is like. like Santa, I said, Santa, you must have been very good this year. Because Steve said, well, I'm going to be even better next year. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> but what was beautiful about it was, like, you were very excited as well. You bought the tree for the flat. And we were teaching you, like, all of those customs. And then you cooked Syrian food for our soup and hummus. And, and it was just felt like this really really fun and beautiful exchange and it really reminded us what Christmas should be about. It was really lovely. And Yusuf, who's a very teenage friend of Steve's, I asked other friends to take him in London and I got him a stocking and I met him outside the theatre, we were going to see the jungle, and I just gave him this plastic bag with a stocking inside, like a shopping bag, and I went, just before we were going to the theatre, I went, Santa gave me this to give to you. <laughs> But he said not to open it till Christmas Day. And Yu Yu was, you know, he was 18 and he just took it and just like smiled quietly. And his, his English was not, his English is amazing now, but it wasn't that great then. And he was just like, he just took it and he was like, He came to me and asked me first, and then I was like, I don't know. <laughs> he, just, he just looked at me like, We're about to go into the theater. He goes, Who gave you this to give to me? I went, Santa. And he went, I don't know him. He was like, I just got my papers, man. Christmas. 
and it was really beautiful. So that's our story of Christmas. Do you get lots of stories like this? We do, and this year my Christmas is going to be really weird because we're not going to have a guest. I'm actually going up to see my parents. My parents live in the middle of nowhere. Um, nobody wants to go to the middle of nowhere. <laughs> we'll stay in London in your house, but thanks. <laughs> so for the last couple of years we've had guests. It is brilliant to try and kind of share that tradition with people. Our last guests were Orthodox Christians. They were Eritreans. And they were quite confused because their Christmas is about 12 days later. Not as confused as at Easter, because Jesus dies and rises again, but is still dead for them, and then rises again. And my five-year-old was completely blown away by this. I don't know what religion he thinks they follow now. Um, but there is that thing about reaching out and sharing, and it's not a one-way thing. We're not kind of brilliant, charitable people that welcome waifs and strays into our homes. We're just ordinary people that are lucky enough to have spare rooms. And we get to meet completely awesome people and have a lot of fun and set light to Christmas puddings. Um, Hassan's face, for the first time, here's pudding. We're about to set light to it. His face was absolutely brilliant. Um, <laughs> so it's well, worth doing our, just for that. At our Lancashire Christmas, Rachel, there is a tradition that when Elizabeth brings out the pudding set fire to it, we all sing, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to Jesus, happy birthday to you. <laughs> And uh, I had to tell Steve, if you go to someone else's house for Christmas, don't do that. That's that's our thing. What's the thing with your Christmas? Loads of it, you realise, like, that's not normal. We just do that. It's become a thing. And my mother turned to Hassan slightly nervously. This was the first Syrian she'd ever met. And said, do you have ice cream in Syria, dear? I was like, where do you think he comes from? (laughs) But, but, you know, it's just that meeting people and... There are things, well, there are things it's so delightful and warm and gorgeous because there are things that people know and things that people don't because Steve always said we didn't get a lot of Western media because there were embargoes and so just before I was talking about Christmas stockings and just before going up Steve went what? wait does everyone's present have to be in a stocking? I don't have stockings and he was like no no I only Santa's presents he was like thank god and I think we don't realise what people don't know but it's so warm and gorgeous and we just had such a great time and well we did anyway I hope you did <laughs> Great time. They were my one of my favorite years. In, uh, my, the Christmas I had there was very. Uh, I haven't celebrated like that in a long time, so that was great. But the most moving thing that I remember that happened is uh, Steve has a thing. I don't know. It's it's funny because Steve's a young man, but because he's lived through a war, he has a lot of the hallmarks that I associate with people who lived through the Second World War, like hoarding. <laughs> It's like it's beautifully collated, like an Instagram thing. But I'll come into his room where he has his silversmith workshop, and I'll be like, "Why is there an antique sewing machine there?" It's like I just found it. I'm like, "No, you didn't. You did not just find that. Where is it from? I don't know. Just a market. I don't know. Whatever." And I'll come the next day, like, "Why are there four new teddies?" I don't know. I just anyway. Um... The other thing is anniversary dates. Like Steve will always be like messaging me, like, "It's one year today since I got my papers, or it's one year today since this happened, or it's five years since the Exodus, or whatever." And Steve messaged me, he was upstairs because we'd, or we were getting dressed up for Christmas dinner. And Steve had gone up to Ironshire, and I got this little message on my phone that was like a note that he'd screenshot and sent to me, which was, this is the first time I've ironed a piece of clothing since the Exodus. And it just, oh, it just made me cry so much because I was like, I would think, oh, good on, sure. But actually, 
if you've been displaced, it's like a hallmark of finding your humanity again. Oh, I'm the kind of person now that gets to wear an iron shirt that has a fancy dinner to go to. Um, so I highly recommend this. If you can have so much to stay, you, it will endow your Christmas with so much joy and cultural exchange and warmth. And you get to share something precious to you and your family with somebody who has lost the infrastructure of their life and lost their family. And they will reward you a hundredfold, I guarantee it. And even your racist grandmother or whoever, <laughs> they won't feel like that. They'll be like, oh, you know, they'll see someone like, oh, where is your mother? Where is your grandmother? And they all start to fall. It's a wonderful thing to do. We are leaving London and we found our cats out, so we would like to have refugees stay in our flat. And which is brilliant, and I'm already checking how many rooms you've got. <laughs> it's like Steve said to me, How do you know? Like, how do you know? Like, you know, how do, and I said, Well, how do Airbnb know? Like, rich people can smash stuff up and pay for it. Refugees, all they have is their network. I don't know, have you had any bad experiences? Um, we've had vanishingly few. Um, there is a notorious red alarm clock and a debate about whether it was gifted or lent. But that's pretty much it. <laughs> You've lost you can just buy a new one. Yeah. We did in the end. We were a bit like, it's an alarm clock. Um, but actually, I think the thing is, it's really intimidating to think about opening your house to a stranger. But then if you flip it round, it's more intimidating for a stranger to just go to Brixton and knock on the door and hope that the people behind that door will be okay. Because the people behind that door have got property, they've got papers, they've got language, they've got social capital, and the point at which guests come to us, they've got none of that. And so they're in a much more vulnerable position and are almost without fail respectful, charming, desperate to do something for you to pay back, which is usually cooking, which suits me. Um, it's terrifying the first time you do it. I remember the first time my door went and I stood there behind the door thinking, what the hell have you done? You've got this luck. Why have you invited a stranger into your life? And I opened the door and I clapped eyes on Hassan and he looked terrified and all my doubts went. And I was like, just come in, come in, have a cup of tea. He hated English tea, but never mind. <laughs> there is just something about accepting that it's much scarier to go to a stranger's house than it is to open your door. So yeah, everyone should do it. Honestly, it's changed my life. Genuinely, genuinely changed my life. So if you can, if you're going away, or you can have an extra guest, refugees at home. Now, Hannah, tell us about crisis and how we can help you. So every year, we're very, very fortunate that we're able to mobilise thousands of volunteers up and down the country to help us to deliver crisis at Christmas. Um, and what we do at crisis at Christmas is we provide uh, people with a warm, safe space to sleep. Um, we provide them with meals. Um, there's lots of Christmas entertainment. It really is a kind of opportunity for people who are experiencing homelessness to have a break from all of that. And crucially, it's obviously a lovely time for people to come into those centres and for us to sort of work with them, talk to them, get to know them, but really, really crucially, connect them into our all-year-round services. It can be the kind of beginning starting point in somebody's journey to end their homelessness. So really, really important point. And often, I think, at Christmas, it's that time that we're spending with friends, with family. And for people who are homeless, it can be such a isolating and lonely experience. So to come into crisis at Christmas centres at Christmas can be very, very daunting, very challenging for people, but something that can be the beginning of the end of their journey in terms of homelessness. 
So in what ways can we help you? Do you need money? Um, yes, so uh, we need uh, money. <laughs> um, I guess I'll start with volunteering. Um, so we're very, very fortunate. We have thousands of volunteers that help us every single year. Um, our plea in terms of volunteers will be for people who have uh, what I would describe as specialist skills. Um, so we're always looking for people who can cut hair, so hairdressers, dentists, opticians. And I know when I first started volunteering with Crisis at Christmas, I'd sit in the room and I was just a general volunteer. And the role of a general volunteer is really just to kind of keep the show on the road. And they say, right, who, do we have any hairdressers in the room? And I was always really tempted to say, yes, that would be me. But they did inform me, you have to be a real hairdresser. You can't just go around cutting uh, people's hair. That's implied, Hannah. Yeah. That's, that may be just you. Yeah. She's going to have a go. Just like, I reckon I can do it in hair. Um, <laughs> is not uh, qualification enough. Uh, similarly, you cannot cook uh, all the dinners, you can help serve them. And we're always looking for catering staff as well. So if people do want to volunteer, we have centres in London, Birmingham, Coventry, Newcastle and Edinburgh. Um, and if you can't, we do appreciate that over the Christmas period, people are very, very busy. Um, so if you want to donate to Crisis at Christmas, it actually only costs you £28.18 to reserve a place. As I said, that will give what some do people get for that. So it gives one person access to Crisis at Christmas services for that whole entire period. So it's running from the 23rd right through to um, New Year's Eve, I think. Um, and that means that they'll have access to a warm, safe bed. They'll have three meals a day. They'll have a meal on Christmas Day. There's lots of entertainment. There's lots of activities. And as I said, it's kind of connecting people into that advice and that support to end their home. Is that 28 pounds a day? No, for the whole period. Twenty-eight pounds for the whole period. So if we give twenty-eight pounds on some change, yep. somebody will be taken care of from Christmas Eve to around. I think it's the 29th? Yeah, is that right? They'll be taken care of from Christmas Eve to the 29th. They'll have a warm bed. They'll have a hot shower. They'll have three meals a day. They'll have a Christmas celebration. Yeah. I mean, it's as simple as that. So if you give two hundred, you give two hundred eighty quid, it rounds up to three hundred quid. Yeah. You could do that, and I appreciate not everyone can do that, but some people can. And yeah. ten people would have a safe warm, healthy Christmas. Yes. This is That's absolutely incredible. You need eat nighttime volunteers, daytime volunteer slots are filled, yeah. is that right? But if anyone can volunteer in the evening, and this could be the start of something where you volunteer, again, you've tried out over the Christmas period because it's freezing cold, you've got a bit more time off work, so you're feeling that compassion, you want to make it active because you know people are cold and they're hungry and it's a time when they miss their families. So you go and do it then, and then you just might plug into something where you think, actually, I want to do this more. I might go back in January and help again. Um, how, what's the website we go to? So you can go to uh, www.crisis.org.uk forward slash guilty feminist. Did you ever sleep rough when you were displaced, Steve? Um, so I remember when I was, one time I was trying to cross a, a border from a country to another, and uh, I got caught and I slept in a park. And in the morning I woke up and walked in the park and I realised people were looking at me in a strange way. So I had brick clothes and uh, suit all over my, my face and uh, people were looking at me, some of them were looking in with compassion, some of them were looking in disgust. That was when I realised what being homeless feels like and uh, being adding to also being a uh, refugee. So now people ask me sometimes what can be done, what's the solution to this? And I say maybe there is a simple recipe, it's just meeting refugees individually meeting a, ref a person who is a refugee. Because I think one of the major elements that factors into the problem is 
the fact that the media others refugees rather than telling individual stories. And when we don't know much about someone, we, when we don't have th- many things in common with somebody, we are less likely to feel for them, we are less likely to uh, relate to them. So what I would say is just meet refugees and you will meet find out, people. meet homeless people and refugees and find out about their stories and their life experiences. and. Uh, I am a refugee myself, and I'm not sitting here trying that marketing for refugees here. But if you think, if you think you the, the, the hummus that you've been eating from Tesco all your life is delicious, they've lied to you, my friend. So, to Steve Allen, thank you very much. Guilty Feminists, it's Deborah Francis White briefly interrupting your podcast listening to say thanks to all who came to the Choose Love pop-up shop in London. If you didn't get down to see us, I will be appearing there again and we'll let you know on the Guilty Feminist feed with a little drop-in announcement. In the meantime, you can go to choose.love and buy life-saving supplies for refugees who are in the bitter, freezing cold right now please go and do that. Our Guilty Feminist tour is in May, June next year. It's going all over the UK. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com or Ticketmaster and you will be able to find out where we're coming closest to you. Tickets make great Christmas presents. Get in now. They really are going fast now. Also, you can buy the Guilty Feminist book, which I wrote with my own brain and fingers and has got lots of lovely five-star reviews. And you can get that at Waterstones, any good bookshops or Amazon. And if you could review it on the Waterstones website, the Amazon website and Goodreads, if you've read it and enjoyed it, that would really, really help out the book, me and the podcast. Also, Grown Up Land, which you can hear on BBC Sounds, is a spontaneity shop podcast co-created by me with Radio 4. It stars Mae Martin, Bisha K. Alley, Ned Sedgwick and Steve Alley. It's a really, really wonderful show. Can I advise that you give it a listen? If you love The Guilty Feminist, I promise you're going to love Grown Up Land. Check it out now on BBC Sounds. And Global Pillage is back. Global Pillage is a podcast that celebrates cultural diversity. And it's also a comedy panel show where two teams of comedians go against the hive mind of the audience. So go to globalpillage.net, give us a listen, give us a review and make it five stars. Back to the podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com
didn't just go, oh. <laughs> Remember how they go on camels and they were like, where's this baby then? And they like rode all the way and they followed a star and they weren't sure if they were gonna make it, but then in the end they did and then they gave out the presents. No one was sure what it was for, but the main thing is they did it. <laughs> That's right. There wasn't a clear ask, and I think that was the problem. But the main thing is, they got that gold, they got that frankincense, they got that myrrh, they got on the camels, they took it out, they did something. And people often say Jesus was a refugee, and most people misunderstand what that means, because Jesus was a refugee. Uh, but when do you think Jesus was a refugee? This is Sunday school now. <laughs> Remember, I had a very religious upbringing, so I know all sorts of shit you don't know. Uh, so when do people think Jesus was a refugee? When he was born, why? That was later. That was later. When he was born, what happened? The census, that's right. So Jesus' family had to go back to Bethlehem for a census. They lived in Nazareth because they'd moved. Because people moved. They'd moved for work because there wasn't enough carpentry. Bethlehem. <laughs> it's like, really a slow time for carpentry. So Joseph's like, do you want to go to Nazareth? Or whatever. I don't know. I think they met in Nazareth, probably, because they were still just, it was a new relationship. So anyway, they had to go back to Bethlehem because everyone has to go back to their hometown for a census because oppression. And then they get there and there's no room at the inn because... All the beds are taken because everyone's trying to get home for the census and it's Christmas. <laughs> well, it must have been. And uh, everything's booked up. And they're like, so this is the part of the story where really they're sleeping rough. They're potentially homeless. They're not really refugees. And they're not really refugees because they haven't had to leave their country due to uh, not being able to stay there anymore because it's not habitable because of war or climate change or anything like that. They're homeless because they're in a different part of their country and there's no facilities for them. When are they refugees, though? Because they are refugees later in the story. And where do they go? Egypt! Egypt! Yes, they were refugees in Egypt. And why were they refugees in Egypt? You said it before. Herod. Herod, that's right. When Jesus was about two years old. And actually, some scholars think that's actually when the three wise men showed up as well but it's prettier in the manger in the picture. So, yes, they had to go to Egypt because Herod said that he was gonna kill all the firstborn baby boys. Why? Prophecy. Because you say, because he was a bastard. Did you just call our Lord and Savior a bastard? <laughs> no, not because he was a bastard, no. Oh, you mean because there was, because she got knocked up before they got married, because she was a virgin. Yep. Um, that virgin story, we've all used that. Uh, come on. Who, who hasn't found themselves knocked up at Christmas and said, I certainly don't remember having sex with another gentleman. Uh, no, because there was a prophecy that the Messiah was coming, a la the life of Brian. Everyone was looking for the Messiah. That's... Very naughty boy, thank you. You're all individuals. We're all individuals. I'm not. Yeah. Um, and that's what that film's about. The film is about that Jesus was at a time when there was a prophecy that Messiah would come and that would take Israel out of captivity because they were currently under the occupation of who? 
The Romans, correct, correct. We're learning so much tonight about <laughs> the true meaning of Christmas. And so uh, because of this prophecy, Herod, who was the Roman, you know, chap in charge, chap was in charges, um, he, he said, well, listen, if we kill all the baby boys under this age, sort of toddlers, then whoever the Messiah is, deadity deadsters. Sorted. Sorted. And because he too was a narcissistic, sociopathic dictator, um, much like we see uh, almost everywhere uh, in governments today. And so Jesus' parents went, oh, Jesus. Jesus Christ, have you read the news? And they had to get on another camel and a couple of donkeys, and they fled to Egypt. And when they got there, they were like, I don't know if you've ever been to the Egyptian-Israeli border. It's very contentious. They check every, I mean, they body set you. Um, I mean, I don't know if it was like that then. Um, different times, but that's what happened to me. Uh, and when they got there, they had to rely on the government of another country in the hope of another country would take them in and see them as refugees and see them as people who were genuinely under threat from a fascist dictator. And luckily, Egypt did, and they hid out there for a few years and then they came back, and that's why we have a Messiah. And all these years later, that's why all of those right-wing Christian Republicans who love to go to church so much and ban women having rights over their own body are so damn kind to refugees, just in case they're the second coming and another Messiah. Because you never know when the Messiah is gonna turn up as a refugee. See what I'm saying, gang? Are you ready for your next wonderful comedian? She's a guilty feminist favorite. She is also from the United States of America, which I've realized is accidentally a theme this evening. We'll weave it into the theme. Put your hands together for one of your favorites. Make fantastically guilty feminist woohooing, cheering, welcoming noises for the wonderful Desiree Burns! It's so exciting to be here. I, uh, Ahari is an amazing, uh, lovely voice, shining light coming out of America. I'm just a big old bitch who tells dick jokes living over here. Uh, no, it's true. Because uh, Deb was like, oh, we're talking about active compassion. I was like, that's literally the opposite of comedy. Like, comedy is literally like, I could have compassion for this person, but it's too good to tell a bunch of other people for money. Um, so, Okay, so uh, you guys know me. I tell dick jokes. I'm going to try to be compassionate about doing it. So um, as you heard earlier, I am uh, on the scene. I'm dating again, uh, which means uh, I'm dating again for love, and I have a, a fuck buddy for reasons. Uh, because, I, because I want to be compassionate to the guy that I'm interested in, and I also want to be compassionate to the fuck buddy who is vastly older than me and should be very grateful. Um, so I... But, okay, so... Um, and... Uh, like a very, you know, like you guys are a very like aware out there audience. And I don't know how many of you guys have like relationships or any like sex interracially. Um, if you date interracially though, I don't know, like when you're the brown person in any kind of interracial relationship, like you're always waiting for like some other shoe to drop inconveniently, you know? And it's usually after sex, like when you're in bed and the guy's like, yeah, I want some of that chocolate. And you're like, ew, gross, ew, ugh. Like, 
Puck, you know? My name ain't Willy Wonka, Goose Goose, fuck off, you know? Um, but like, I... <laughs> but there are things that are just curious things that come up that aren't sort of racially loaded. They're just, like the first time you saw a pair of brown nipples and you were like, oh, I guess they would be brown. That makes sense. And you didn't realize they were going to be, right? Things happen and you're like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense, but they're a shock to you, right? And so like, I have those things too, even though I've dated a lot of white dudes. I don't know, because I've been seeing the fuck buddy for a while, and I just wanted to ask the guilty feminists, like, when is the right time to tell a guy, maybe you should get that mole looked at? Like, it's so red, you guys, like, so bright red. Like, and it's never in a place where he can find it. It's always like when you're going down, you're like, oh, 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 oh. Like, he's, he's not gonna see that ever. And I just caught a peek at that, and I, I'm like, you know, like, I wanna pay it. He's already given me the free breast exam, right? I should pay it forward, right? should be like, but there's not a good time to bring that up when you're casually seeing someone, right? Because you just go over there to screw. So like, you don't want to say it beforehand because you don't want to wreck the mood and you don't want to say it afterwards because he's passed immediately out, right? So I was just thinking like, maybe if I just whisper it as he's falling asleep, like if I just go, melanoma. Because then maybe he'll think it was his idea and then I'll get it checked out and we don't have to have a weird fight about it. I, I don't know if that, although if that does work, I should use it for the forces of good and say something like, wash your dick. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like, you rub it all the time, just do it with body wash. I don't want to say She's got to get in the folds, dude. It doesn't just automatically get clean. You know, like the legs. Anyway, anyway. is for me to check in with you guys on what the right answer is. Here's another one, a question I have, because I think you can, okay, so have you, have you ever fucked someone just to get rid of them? Okay, that laugh tells me yes. I've been feeling really bad, but like that, because the thing, like, I just, it's a situation we find ourselves in in the modern world, you know, like, especially when you meet people online, like if you're doing any online dating, the problem is that you learn a lot about that person before you ever meet them. Like you read a whole dossier and then you create a whole film script that they're gonna star in with you in their head, you know, like, so there's nowhere to go but down as you meet them, right? You know, cause you go to that date like, you know, who wants to be a millionaire? I wants to be a millionaire. And then you're sitting there talking to them and you're like, maybe I could be a thousandaire. Woo, a hundredaire, can I get 20 bucks for an Uber? What can I get out of it? You know, and like, Sometimes you're sitting there and he's a perfectly nice dude, but you're like, I don't think in the long run we're gonna get on, so maybe we could just get off, right? It'd be great. Cause, okay, here's how all of those, blind, not blind, but like sort of, you know, Tinder match, I don't know, where you guys meet your people, Fet Life, like Craigslist, friggin', you know, Gumtree Flat Shares. I don't know how you meet your people, how do you do it, right? You know, you learn a lot about them, then you go and show up at the agreed upon bar, right? You get there 15 minutes late to be fashionable. You get a text 10 minutes later saying, oh, the district line's running behind, so sorry. And you're like, oh, God. So you get yourself an extra large glass of wine. Meanwhile, you haven't had dinner. So by the time he shows up, you are rip shit drunk. <laughs> right? Just looking your best, like, come on, baby, what can I get out of you know? And then of course, like, it's so underwhelming because no matter how much you've talked by WhatsApp, he walks in and says something like, so what are you into? And you're like, oh, motherfucker. Like, like, come on, we've already been over this, okay? We both read Vonnegut. We're both in Ravenclaw. I'm from LA. You're from Ravenclaw. Fucking go. You know? 
homework, bitch. Where the hell have you been, right? You know, but like, you don't want to wreck the whole thing. You're just sitting there. I, I've just been so many times recently sitting there looking at the guy like, look, you know, I, I can see your future wedding photo and I'm not in it, all right? Like, I'm not the one standing next to you wearing an overpriced hairdo that's essentially a bun with a bunch of flowers in it. And like, I certainly do not want to like make a bunch of dumb, ugly babies with you that look like russet potatoes with googly eyes on them. And I definitely don't want to go to awkward family events where I have to pretend your nan isn't being casually racist every time. She refers to me as Condoleezza when she thinks I'm not in the room. Like, I don't even look like her. It's the only black lady's name she knows, right? <laughs> like, I certainly don't want to have to wake up early on a Saturday morning, my Saturday morning, to hold up a sign for you at the 5K you decided you were gonna run. <laughs> you know, just so like a bunch of poor kids who can barely lift their hands to their mouths have to high five you for a photo for the Croydon Gazette, dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> like essentially because your fun run for cat aids did not take off the way you had planned. Um, I'm just trying to work that in because I haven't, I, I, like, what is cat aids? I don't, it's, I don't own a cat, I, I presume it's a cat autoimmune disease, but like whenever I hear it, I just imagine a bunch of 80s cats hanging out in a junkyard, sharing needles and stuff. And like, obviously they have to share the needles. They don't have a posable thumb. Somebody else has to press the plunger down, right? So like, this is an epidemic we all saw coming and we did nothing, all right? Anyway, for those of you who did not immediately recognize the fucking someone to get rid of them thing, I can guarantee all the rest of you will empathize with pretty much the same feelings that come up in a similar situation. And that's when you wind up in a Facebook message group that you never asked to be in, right? This is all, like, it always happens, like your phone's blowing up, there's 25 messages, you click on the message, and it's always the same kind of message. You see it in all caps, and it's just like, hey guys, it's Michelle, my 34th coming up on Saturday, what are we doing? And like, your first thought is, who the fuck are you, Michelle? Like, I'm sorry, your profile pic is of a puppy. If you don't have a face, you don't get to have a fucking birthday. Sorry, Michelle. Also, you're not on a one-name basis. You're not Madonna or Cher. Like, unless your last name is Obama or My Bell, you don't just get to go by Michelle, okay? You have to identify. And don't make me click on this, because you're going to be some girl that I tempt with eight years ago. And then you click on it, and sure as shit, it's Michelle from your old office job who's begging you to come out to her party. And you're just like, you know, Michelle, there is a birthday party protocol, and we all know it, all right? You send out an invite a month beforehand that everybody ignores the shit out of, right? Then two weeks after you set up a Facebook event and everybody gets to check whether seven people are going or 70 people are going so we can gauge our responsibility in this situation, right? And then a week out, you send out a group text message so everybody on it knows that they are personally responsible and they have to come up with an excuse for neurovirus in the next five days, right? stuff and I'm angry at Michelle, I look down at the message and I see Jane Smith has left the group. And I'm like, who the fuck are you, Jane Smith? Like, what are you, an Olympian of abandoning friends? That was like not 0.8 seconds, Jane Smith. You the flojo of fucking off? What's happening here? Also, like, I'm upset with Jane Smith because I'm like, Jane Smith, I wanted to do that shit. I, like, I can't leave this group for another day because I don't want Michelle to slit her wrist before her 34th birthday, all right? She's not 27, it's not gonna be cute anymore, all right? I have a responsibility to her now. Also, now I gotta click on Jane Smith's profile because I'm just like, why, why are you so busy? You can't go to Michelle's birthday party. Let's see, what are you, busy being interested in capoeira and the Women Empowering Women Summit? 
What are, what, are you, what are you doing? Are you too busy listening to Leonard Cohen and Godspeed, you black emperor? Oh, you have good musical taste. <laughs> what does she do for a living? She's an SVP of SVPs at Unilever. Well, shit, of course she's busy. I mean, at this point, I'm now double mad at Michelle. Because I'm like, Michelle, I don't have time to go to your like hopster, your hipster Hoxton cocktail bar on a Saturday night. But you know who really doesn't have time? Jane fucking Smith, okay? Jane Smith is gonna be exhausted on Saturday night from having spent all afternoon mentoring inner city youth on public speaking and volunteering at the Soho Needle Exchange. I mean, she barely has time for the three hours a week of physical therapy that she requires from that year that she volunteered in Mozambique and managed to get the last case of polio that ever existed, all right? Like, Shane Smith does not have time to entertain your need for casual relationships, Michelle, all right? She barely has time for a real relationship. When Jane Smith goes out on an internet date, she shows up to the bar 15 minutes early, all right? She sits there facing the door, waiting for this little plenty of fish asshole to waddle in. Orders herself a Chivas Regal neat. She's a purist, all right? She just sits there, staring at the door, checking the TFL website to see that the district line is running on time. Right? Jane Smith just goes, let me go ahead and stop you right there. See, what you have done is placed the burden of conversation upon a potential partner who's actually looking to you for respite, comfort, and excitement. What I suggest you do is some ontological research into the nature of female desire as well as the personal proclivities of your potential partner. And as this guy's trying to figure out any of the fucking words Jane Smith just said, she looks at him and says, you know, you seem like a very nice person. I'd hate to waste any more of your time. Good day. And then she stands up, tightens the bolts on her leg braces and waddles out of that bar like John goddamn Wayne, all right? is a baller, all right? She is everything I wanna be. Like, Jane Smith can just end a bad date with good day, whereas I end a bad date with uh-uh-uh. Uh. <laughs> just wasting expensive mascara I got at John Lewis for no good reason. Oh, what's, what's with the hand? I'm already blowing you. with no need for reciprocity, all right? Like, it might not be the blowjob you want, but it's definitely the one you deserve. <laughs> all right, you guys are so, so lovely. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. Oh. It has been too long. Yes, it has been. We need we need more Desiree. Well, we've been busy as women. Let's we be honest. Desiree is never off the television now. She is always on the television. If you turn the television on, Desiree will be there. And if I'm not there, I'll come to your house and sit on your television. <laughs> like a stray cat you never asked for. <laughs> That is true. <laughs> I was watching The Apprentice after show. I texted Desiree, why you not on this? She was round at my house, just live commentating. Yeah, <laughs> and it was messed up because it was a flat screen bolted to the wall. Not anymore! Hey. <laughs> so we have a guest now. Our first guest today is a human rights and immigration lawyer working in the United States of America. Cry for her. Yeah. Um, she has come on the podcast before. Many of you will remember her from our Muslim ban emergency episode. She is a truly insightful woman. Uh, when Trump got in, 
she said that morning she decided she was going to open a cat refuge because she could no longer do the job of immigration lawyer. She wanted to have a cat sanctuary, and then she spent a couple of hours crying, planning the cat sanctuary, and went, oh no, I, I really do need to keep helping people. And, and run a cat sanctuary now too. Listen, you would need that just for the therapy. Uh -huh. I'm sure she has had to get a number of extra cats. We're about to find out. But she's doing an extraordinary job under very difficult circumstances. She's gonna give us a read for where we are with active compassion in American immigration. So put your hands together, and I really do mean this. I always say, I'll give a huge welcome. I mean, I prostrate, cheer, break laws if necessary to welcome this woman onto our stage. It's Michelle Garner McKenzie! Last time we saw you, Trump had not long been in power, and you were still in shock. Ours, it panned out. We haven't heard any news. It's been great. <laughs> it's been great. It's Much better than expected, right? It's been so great. I hear America's great again. It is. <laughs> it is. time. Wow. So, Michelle, tell us, seriously, what's the situation? Well, it, it has gone from pretty bad to worse. I think what's been most difficult for me as an asylum lawyer has been watching the attack on our vital protection system of seeking refugee status. Being recognized as a refugee is this essential safety valve to oppression. And we've just been watching it get hammered. Not just the most recent just complete shit show at the border that was really precipitated by the president as the migrant caravan. Has everybody heard about the migrant caravan? Yeah, they were really moving fast as they walked these women and children hundreds of miles, right? It was like said to be like, and all the election's coming, they're getting here any minute. And they're it's like, like they'll, they'll be here. Miles away. They'll be here. And this narrative of invasion um, has been one that white nationalists have propagated to um, you know, further their agenda for decades. And now they are policy advisors, they're policy makers. It's just appalling. So that sort of thing has been, I think, just heartbreaking um, when I see clients who are struggling to be able to get protection, to reunite with their families, seeing our kiddo clients, you know, wondering where their parents are and why they left them. It's just been appalling. So you've been there trying to fight for the rights of those children and their parents and trying to get them reunited. Have you had any success? We have. Now, I'm based, uh, the Advocates for Human Rights is up in Minnesota, so if you don't know the United States, that's at the top. Um, so we're seeking to be recognized as Lower Canada, um, that's the other <laughs> item. Um, but in, in lieu of that, we're now working, um, you know, we see clients when they've been released from detention on our southern border and shipped up to family or friends in Minnesota to be reunited when they're kiddos. We're seeing now adults moved up that we've never seen before. Um, waves of people who are asylum seekers coming up to Minnesota with no ties there to make bed space down south, right? Because we only have 50,000 immigration beds on any given day in the United States. You gotta keep those moving, right? And kids are just one part of that puzzle. So I think the most 
upsetting case for my colleagues at our office was this eight-year-old Honduran girl who was literally ripped out of her dad's arms when they came and appeared at the border. And by the way, that is the process for seeking asylum in the United States. You show up at the border and ask. There's not like another way you're supposed to go about it. You don't pop into the embassy and be like, hey, let protect me. You show up. So what they're doing is totally legal. It's legal to turn up and ask. That's right. That is what the law says. It's what the law requires. It's being presented as illegal. Like like Trump's calling them illegals and criminals. But they're doing something that's totally legal. This is totally legal. I will say that this president is no different from presidents past, conflating seeking asylum with illegal migration as though economic migrants are evil people. People move, right? We've moved for 200,000 years. Also, borders are arbitrary. Borders are arbitrary. <laughs> like, like, they were drawn over the people who lived there. And a magical legal fiction, right? Yeah. You know, they, like, we made them up, and now we're expecting people to just magically stop when they get to them. People down in the southwest part of the United States don't say, I crossed the border. They say, the border crossed me. My family was here for 10 generations, and now... Now it's America. Yeah. You know, this is an arbitrary thing, right? So, but we've built a system that has been sort of behind the curtain, right? Not behind this really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> You're missing how we are sitting inappropriately to have this conversation from the good person that's part of the set of a pantomime. <laughs> <laughs> written by Carrie Lloyd, one of our little gentleman's favorites, do you come and see it, Whittington. And that story, by the way, is about Dick Whittington, a young man who comes to London to seek his fortune. He has nothing and he relies on the kindness of strangers. It's a refugee story. That's right. Absolutely, right? That is what people do, right? People come to a new place to seek safety, to seek adventure, to seek, uh, you know, economic survival, survival, um, to flee climate change, whatever. People move, right? And those are important skills people bring, right? Resilience and tenacity and endurance, and, and that's who is being shut out. Not just from the US, and not just at this moment. This has been decades in the making. The US started refugee protection formally, the, the system we use right now, um, in 1980, right? And boom, right after that, the Reagan administration shut down asylum from Guatemala and El Salvador based on political grounds, right? And called the people who tried to get them recognized as refugees, the sanctuary movement, infiltrated that movement and put people in prison and criminalized migration, right? So this is an old story with a lot more resources. So in 1980, when that happened, 54 people on average in detention. Today, 50,000 people on average in detention a day. So it does feel different with Trump, although what you're saying is true, because they're tear-gassing children now. It is different. You're right. It's different in the blatant agenda that's out there. In some ways, it's been easier because we've sort of danced around the racial justice issues of immigration as a movement for 20, 30 years. And, you know, that's bullshit, right? This is all about creating a white nationalist agenda, right? Our first immigration law in our country had to be free and white. And you were in. So good job, you. Woo! Yeah. And we've gone from there. You know, we had a whole, in, in the 1800s, uh, a law that excluded everyone from Asia and the Middle East in something called the Asiatic Bar Zone. Isn't that nice? Um, but you know, now so we're looking at it and we're horrified. And now we're looking at it and we're actually seeing 
the mechanisms that have been built systematically either to protect the system or to protect the people in power, right? And, and to keep a workforce that is under the table and easily exploited. One of the bright spots in our practice has been that we've seen a tremendous view of labor trafficking, finally, you know, looking at it and saying, oh my God, this is actually a crime in our state. Let's try to fix things instead of just, this is the way business models work. It's cheaper to not pay people. It is actually cheaper to not pay your workforce than to pay your workforce. That's true. <laughs> it's a really good cost saver. Um, so, but that's illegal, right? And so people are starting to recognize that on the asylum side, you know, last summer when we had families ripped apart, when we had little kids in cages built by military contractors, you know, and supplied to the Border Patrol to hold these kids in. People were out in the streets in the U.S. like never before. And I mean, on an immigration issue. This is not, and I'm from Minnesota, we are not a marching people. We are very <laughs> quiet people, um, and we sometimes will like clap at concerts. You know, and, and people were out in the streets saying, asylum is a human right. And that is a huge bright spot. We started a court observer project just locally in our local immigration court that sends people out to see what's going on, document what's going on. We're doing research with the local university, the University of Minnesota. We're trying to keep an eye on what's happening and bring transparency and humanity into the courtroom. And people are outraged, right? So we can get in there and actually see what's happening. And we never did. We didn't care. There wasn't enough. It wasn't a big deal. It was just the way it was. They were illegals, blah, 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 blah. And people are caring. So that is a first step toward, I think, dismantling the system we built so that we can make it live out our values. When you say these 50,000 immigration beds, like how do you get one of those beds? And then when do you get kicked out of one of those beds? And what happens to you after you're Sorry. not in that bed? I, I'm, yeah, I'm giving a, a misleading impression. Uh, beds are jail. Those are prison beds, right? Thank you. The U.S. has a real um, crisis that we refer to as mass incarceration, and it deals with the criminal injustice system, and it deals with, you know, just over-policing communities of color, and there's all sorts of ways into this that propel kids out of school and into prison that make up this enormous, huge prison population in the U.S., and states were getting kind of sick of footing the bill to the private prison companies that profit from this because about you know there's a huge industry in the United States of privately owned prisons and all the infrastructure that supports it. If you want to make a phone call to your family member, or leave a message for $1.99. You know, there's all this stuff going on, right? So the big prison companies over a decade ago, really turned probably close to 20 years now, old, uh, turned their sites to the immigration business, right? And we started to see new detention laws and bigger budget allocations. Oh my God. And so they're building detention centers for immigrants because they want to make more money. It's a profit motive. Right. How many hell is there anything that America can't capitalize on? No, no. no. we are an extremely, it's extraordinary. Yeah. That's extraordinary. And it's a conversation of people. You right? say to me backstage, yeah. like, I mean, you have so much of a better model with like Cali, and I'm like, we're super ashamed of Cali. Like, we benefit from your very low bar. Right. We, we like to say, <laughs> look at Cali. Nobody's actually in jail. 
most of the time. Right. They are sleeping in the dirt and the CRS come along and slash their tents to try and get them to move on. Right. But it's not an actual state-funded prison. Right. So, like, you know, right. um, yay. Well done. Yeah. And, and the children's, you know, I think one of the really um, horrible moments of the last several years has been watching the building of family detention centers where moms and their kids would be held while they were seeking asylum. And when we got this new twist over the summer where the then Attorney General, uh, we keep going through that, because I don't know if around a bit. Oh, no, but there was one. Was in our cabinet either. Uh, <laughs> there, the one that I always So, uh, it had said everybody has to be prosecuted for illegal entry into the U.S. Um, even if they were standing at the border asking for asylum, which is not attempting to illegally enter, in these mass criminal trials that happen under a program called Operation Streamline, um, where they actually do criminal Did trials. Did you stop guys saying that? Or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> really cool. But at that point, then, the children had to be taken away from their parents because the parents were then put in federal marshal's custody, which is criminal custody, to be prosecuted for the illegal entry, which is a federal misdemeanor, right? And then they would plead guilty so they could get put back with their kids as soon as possible even though the government could have never proven a case against them because they weren't actually trying to illegally enter. So they were doing that, right? And we're in this weird place of being like, oh, if only people could be in those family detention centers, right? And that's, that's just... That's uh, how they do it. They make worse things. Well, it's a bit like the whole Jim Acosta thing. Now they've said, oh, well, because of Jim Acosta, he's got to be allowed back in because the judge said, but now we can have new protocols and new rules. And those rules are sounding distinctly fascist. Like... One question, if the president doesn't want to answer, and you keep pushing, you'll get asked to leave, and it's right. an excuse right. to bring in... And now Trump's saying it would be great to have a state-funded press. <laughs> that is, he's very much there in agreement with Mussolini. Indeed. Indeed. No, and, and there are... I mean, I think we're at a point where we have to start looking at whether the rule of law is really the rule of law is just a dictate. And it becomes not legitimate as, as a law. Um, but we still do have really important protections on the books that courts are fighting back against. And so a couple of bright spots, and one has been just extraordinary litigation, particularly by our colleagues at the ACLU who have been fighting case after case after case, including co-counseling on one. We have a group of 92 Somali folks. The government attempted to deport them, couldn't quite make it. These people were brought back to the U.S. They had spent 48 hours in shackles on a plane. And so I don't know if anybody's ever been on an airplane and you get a little antsy after two hours and I wish that seatbelt's on. 48 hours in shackles. Jesus. Legs, wrists, stomach. They came back and the government was attempting to just reschedule the flight. Um, we were able to stop that um, with a large collective of folks based in Miami where the plane landed, Minnesota. That kind of litigation is going on step by step by step. And so the more we can fight the courts, the better. Um, so that's a good thing. God bless you for your work. How can we help? This episode is about active compassion. And hearing this, a lot of it's like, well, you know, you're better than we are and always will be. That's what I think. <laughs> I would like to know, what is it, firstly, what can our global listeners do? Secondly, what can our American listeners do to help? 
to help fund you or to support you or to hashtag or what is it? Tell us things. Or to show up somewhere and do something if it's possible. Well, absolutely. So the Advocates for Human Rights is a volunteer-driven organization. We always have been. And being involved, um, we have volunteers in our home community, but we also work with volunteers worldwide to work on research, on documentation, and litigation and advocacy. So So if you're a lawyer, you can help help or not. So we work with researchers, and we work with designers, and we work with all sorts of folks. So we really, our volunteer model is to try to work with people in your professional capacities. So for instance, what we're doing right now could be considered almost a, you know, you're volunteering for human rights. Look at that. I'm such a humanitarian. (laughs) I was volunteering, didn't even know it. Accidentally volunteered for advocates for human rights. Even after you met Michelle Obama, you still showed up. Showed up. Did I mention why I met Michelle Obama? Yeah. Yeah, and you met Matt is an extreme version of what happened. You know what? That's the rumor that's going around. Well, I'm not going to yep. say it. Yeah. Um, he's a woman named Michelle coming up on stage. I, oh, yeah. she said it. You and know, I'm not going to sleep, and I didn't um, shake my armpits, and the whole thing was just, you know, like, this is just a nightmare. And you are a badass. Yeah. So. This is not the first Michelle I've worked with today. <laughs> so, 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 firstly, volunteering. volunteering. What's the website if we wanted to volunteer? The Advocates for Human Rights. The Advocates for Human Rights. Dot O-R-G. Dot org. Also, I mean, people are showing up down at the U.S.-Mexico border to help get people a fair day, a fair shot at the border to actually make their asylum claim. Join up with some of those efforts. Go out to your local immigration court and see what's going on. If there's one in your city, um, there are ways to get involved. And worldwide, the United States is failing absolutely in our obligation to protect refugees, but so is the world, right? There are. 25 million refugees, 60 million internally displaced persons. There are 200 million people living in fragile spaces. Like we have to all step up, and it can't just be the neighboring country that happens to absorb everybody. Um, we have to be able to contribute with that compassion, but also with that. And I think this is what you're doing so amazingly. That way to really understand people as human beings. These aren't refugees. These are human beings who have skills, talents, joy, sorrow, and this is just one chapter in a life. And so bringing people into their full life, you know, getting that back on board, that's what we're all here and called to do. Um, You can also go to uh, helprefugees.org and uh, you're able to volunteer if you're in the UK or in Europe, you can volunteer in Greece, you can volunteer in Calais, you can volunteer here in London, there are refugees that need your help and we'll be talking more about that in the second half. But I wanted to talk to Michelle because I think it's really important, America is often a cultural thermometer for the world and the way that they lead often dictates to large parts of the world what permission that others have over human rights. So it's really important to check in. And because Michelle was in town, I really, really wanted to. And anytime you're in town, please come and give us the latest. You always uh, horrify us and then inspire us. And, give us and as Michelle Obama said today, uh, <laughs> we have to lead with hope. That's what you're doing. We really hope that we can help you. You have been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Michelle Gallagher.
got 30 seconds for our charity of the week. Where are you? Hello, Katie over here from Advocates. Hello. Hello. So many amazing people and amazing causes, and it's a huge privilege to be here. Just very quickly, 30 seconds to share with you about Africans. We are a small but big impact child rights charity working in northern Ghana. And we have an amazing local team over there who design and deliver everything we do. And education is absolutely at the heart of what we do. So we're supporting kids that if they're not in school, they're at risk of living and working on the streets. Our girls um, that we support are at risk of child marriage and teenage pregnancy and with families living on less than £1.50 a day, it is a really, really, really hard environment. So our local team are amazing and today we launch an incredible public fundraising pill which is our biggest opportunity ever. It's called Africa's Time to Shine and you finally flips on your desk. Everything we raise today will be matched by the UK government pound for pound. So if we give £5, we get £10 which can be absolutely transformational for us. That will help us train teachers so that the quality of teaching in schools is really high. It will help us work with mums and dads to understand what is stopping them getting their kids in schools. And it will help us kid out those classrooms with the best possible materials and learning resources so that education really can be transformational. So if you're happy to give before 4th of March, every pound you give is eligible for matching by the government. The um, matching pot will be particularly for an opening doors to school project that we run, which will get the poorest kids into school and keep them there. And the public matching will help us make sure that our kids are healthy, safe and in school. Thank you so much. I should have
Bobby Taylor from this point, we've been the guilty feminists. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, and our special guests, Hari Kondabolu, Desiree Birch, Abigail Shimon, Hannah Galsey, Michelle Garner-McKenzie, and Rachel Mantel, with music from Clarissa Land. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed and played by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Selinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Chris and Ed at Phil McIntyre Productions, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. To support Advocates for Human Rights, that's Michelle Garnett McKenzie in America, go to theadvocatesforhumanrights.org. To support refugees at home or looking into hosting a refugee over Christmas, go to refugeesathome.org. To support Crisis at Christmas, go to crisis.org.uk forward slash guilty feminist. And to support AfriKids, go to AfriKids.org. That's A-F-R-I-Kids.org. So there's a man scheduled, and uh, that's why he hasn't turned up. (laughs) (laughs) Every time you think he's a feminist guy, he's going to show up and be where he's needed to be. Let the women do the work. I'll roll in at the 11th hour. Handshakes and waves. And I, I, you know, and and funnily enough, he's earning 20% more than you tonight, Desiree. So that's the... I'm done with <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com